Let's get started. It's good to see a faithful, loyal core group here. You know, it, it, it really is more productive if people stay in a seminar all the way through than to, you know, go to this seminar or that seminar for an hour here and an hour there because you kind of don't get the flow of what's going on. But uh, I know that's water under the bridge. It's too late. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, if they, like if they came yesterday in the morning, they know all of the problems that God has in the plan of salvation. <laughs> if they didn't come in the afternoon, well, they, then they didn't uh, hear, you know, how God solves the sin problem. But anyway, pardon me? Yeah, that's the good news is that you have uh, uh, technology that will help you listen all. And actually, they're all going to be on Audioverse, I guess. Everything here is going to be free on Audioverse. Wow. That's a real blessing. By the way, do all of you know about Audioverse? Everybody, who doesn't know about Audioverse? Well, you need to you need to go to audioverse.org. There's lots of good stuff, hundreds of free sermons that you can download there. Yeah, probably thousands. You're probably right, thousands of of sermons. Um, I have eleven sermons on there. The sale price is only here. Yeah. Have all of you visited our booth, Secrets Unsealed booth? Anybody that has not visited Secrets Unsealed booth? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Listen, go by. There's lots of, there's lots of goodies there. You know, like, lots of uh, very valuable freebies. So uh, you want to go by, you know, we have some nice balls. We have backpacks that we're giving away. We have, if you sign up uh, a card with your address for our mailing list, you get a free copy of Worship at Satan's Throne, a two-hour DVD presentation on the issues that are taking place with worship styles and music in the Adventist Church. A real eye-opener. So make sure that if you're not on our mailing list, you go by and you pick those things up. They're free. It's a, it's a DVD presentation ca uh, called uh, Worship at Satan's Throne. No, which booth? Secrets, Secrets Unsealed. Secrets Unsealed. Just talk to Eileen. Lots of uh, materials there that are discounted, for, especially for GYC. Significant discount uh, on most of the materials. There's CDs, DVDs on any topic, just on any topic about that you, that you want to deal with. Yes. Oh, no. Uh, well, there's some duplication of material, but uh, Decoding the Secrets of Genesis was done on VHS uh, in 1997. Uh, there were 28 lectures, and, you know, the, the, we did have, used the best technology available at the time. But, you know, it, uh, it was uh, three-quarter inch analog. Uh, but now we did this uh, fully digital, and it's 52 lectures instead of 28. It has twice as many lectures. Um, and it covers many doctrines that were not of the Adventist Church that were not covered in the first series. If anybody wants one series that you should get is Cracking the Genesis Code. It's presenting the full Adventist message from the perspective of the book of Genesis. It, it is just a phenomenal series. Uh, so uh, I, if you want me to recommend one series, that's the most expensive, of course, because it has 52 lectures, but there's a significant discount here at GYC. 
and you can use your credit card, but we don't take American Express. All right, let's get into our study of the book of Job. Let's have a short word of prayer before we do. Father in heaven, as we open up this magnificent book, we ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as I study this book, I've come to the conclusion that we have here a description of what is going to take place with your people during the time of trouble. And so there are lessons from this book which we need to learn and we need to know. So I ask that you will bless us as we study it. And we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Allow me to give you, first of all, some introductory information about the book of Job. The book of Job is the most ancient book of the Bible. According to Ellen White, it was written by Moses in the desert of Midian while he was tending Jethro's sheep. The book of Job is a literary masterpiece. Uh, When you really look at it only apart from being an inspired book of the Bible, when you look at it as literature, it is an incredible book. The book was written approximately 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, Actually, it was written 1500 B.C., but it describes events that took place about 2000 B.C. in the early patriarchal period. The book is written in prose in chapters 1 and 2, and once again it picks up in prose from chapter 42 and beginning in verse 7 till verse 12, the end of the book. In the middle of the book, from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 42, verse 6, you have poetry. In other words, you have an introductory prose section, you have a concluding prose section, and in between you have the larger poetry section. Now, as we examine the book, we notice that the whole universe is involved in this story. And really, this story is describing a trial it's describing a court scene. You say, well, how, do, how is this? Well, let's take a look at the elements of the story. Is there an accuser in, this, in the book of Job? Yes, who is that? Satan. Is there a defense attorney? Who is that? God. And by the way, he's also the judge. In the Bible, there is no separate defense attorney and judge. The judge is to defend the innocent. So the judge is the defense attorney. He defends the innocence against the accuser. Let me ask you, is there evidence that's being examined? Yes, there is. Absolutely. What is the evidence? The the life of Job. That's right. Is there a jury? Who are the jury? The sons of God, according to that. Is there one who is accused? Who is the accused? Yeah, that's right. The accused is God. We're going to notice that. That's that, that critically important detail is in the book of Job. The accused, the devil is not accusing Job. He's accusing God. We're going to come to that. Is there a verdict that condemns the accuser and vindicates the innocent? Yes, but you only see that at the end of the book. And there's... That there's something tremendous that has been missed by many as they study the book of Job. The book of Job shows what's going to happen to the culprit and what is going to happen to Job, who is the one accused. 
Now, basically, let's just go through the first two chapters because this sets the stage for what is going to take place in this book. And we're going to go through these two chapters very quickly. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Was Job a good man? Sure he was. Notice the the expressions. He was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. You say, well, but that's what Moses is writing. A little bit further on, we're going to see that God quotes this. He says, have you not seen my servant Job? And he gives the same characteristics. The reason I underline this is because some people say, oh, Job, he was arrogant. You know, he was was self-centered. He says, why do you do this to me? You know, but the book describes Job as being a righteous and holy, a blameless man. Let me ask you, was he, besides being blameless, upright, fearing God, and shunning evil, was he also a very rich man? That's a strange combination, isn't it? A spiritual man and a rich man? Very strange. Notice verse 2. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. By the way, in the Bible, the more children you have, the greater the sign of God's blessing. So if he has ten children, that means that he's greatly what? Blessed. Verse 3. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. By the way, this is uh, an earthly scene, right? We're going to notice in the first two chapters that the scene fluctuates from earth to heaven to earth to heaven to earth. And that's very important to remember. Verse 4. And his sons would go out and feast in their houses, each on his own appointed day, probably their birthday, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. Was he a family man? Did he love his kids? Yes. Did he have family worship? Yes. It says he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned, and curse God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Family man. Spiritual man. Righteous. Blameless. A man who feared God. Who rejected evil. And yet extremely rich and prosperous. And Job was being watched. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Do the sons of God live in the presence of the Lord? No, because it says that they came to present themselves before the Lord. So they come from some other place. And Satan also came among them. Does Satan claim to have a right to belong to this group? Sure. Why would he come among them if he didn't claim to have a right to, to belong to the group? So he is the devil claiming to be one of the sons of God. Of course. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So where did the devil come from? He came from the earth, a planet. Where did the other sons of God come from then? Well, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to to add 2 plus 2 equals 4. If the devil comes representing the world, then the other sons of God who come to present themselves before the Lord must also come from worlds. There's one difference though. The devil comes from the only sinful world. All of the other ones come from sinless worlds. Why did the devil come representing planet Earth? Who who should have come representing planet Earth? 
Adam. By the way, do you know that in Luke chapter 3, Adam is called the son of God? Adam is called the son of God in the genealogy of Jesus. And so who was the original son of God? Adam. But when Adam abdicated his throne, Satan took over the throne. So Satan said, this is my world. Adam chose to be my servant. All of his followers have chosen to be my servants because they've all sinned. So this world is mine. And so he goes, God allows him to go to heaven representing planet earth. Prince of this world. Yes, the ruler of this world. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, now I can imagine God saying this with, with a little pride, you know, healthy pride. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job. He's my servant, but he lives in your territory. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So this is God saying this now. Ah, but now comes a critically important verse. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, does Job simply serve you because he loves you? With no ulterior motives? Does Job serve you with no mercenary motives or does he serve you for the loaves and the fishes? You see, Job serves you because you've given him everything. So he serves you for selfish motivations. Notice verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him? Around his household? And around, around all that he has on every side. Now, you protect him. You prosper him. You make things go well for him. You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. Of course, anyone would serve you under those circumstances. But the question is, would he serve you if everything went bad? Are you understanding what the issue is here? Who is the devil accusing? God. He says... Does, he says, have not you made a hedge around him? He's saying, if you gave me access to him, I would show you that he serves you out of selfishness, not, by, not because he loves you. He doesn't serve you for nothing. He serves you for the loaves and the fishes. Verse 11. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Who's listening to this conversation? The sons of gods, the representatives of the whole, all of the worlds in the universe. And so now they say, let's see what God is going to do. What if God had, says, had said, no, I know Job serves me because he loves me. I don't have to prove anything. What would have happened? The heavenly beings would have said, hmm, what's God afraid of? Maybe Job does serve God simply because God has surrounded him and protected him and prospered him. What is God afraid of? So now God places himself on the line. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the story begins with an earthly scene describing Job, a prosperous man, a spiritual man, a man who had family worship, who was concerned about his children. Then it moves to the heavenly scene, this heavenly council, where this dialogue takes place, and now it moves back to the earth again. Does Job know that this meeting has taken place in heaven? No. We shouldn't be too hard on Job. 
you know, Job, we're going to notice, had questions and he had doubts and he had perplexities and everything. We can't be too hard on him. First of all, because he didn't know what was happening. And secondly, because he had no written revelation to guide him by. This is the first book of the Bible that was written. Yes. Sure. There were things that were not clear in the mind of Job. And we'll notice that as the story develops. And so it says in verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Basically you can take everything that he has, only don't touch him. So it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And of course all of the heavenly jury is now observing what's going to happen on planet earth. Is Job going to curse God or not? Does he serve God because he loves him simply and purely? Or does he serve God out of mercenary motives? Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now I want you to notice that these calamities don't come in the course of several days. They come in a course of minutes. One right after another. Calamities. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, this is taking place like this, isn't it? One thing right after another. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In a matter of minutes at the most, Job has lost all of his possessions and he has lost all of his children. And the heavenly jury is watching. What is Job going to do? Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He was half right. The Lord gave, but the Lord did not take away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. The devil said, he'll curse you. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> and all of the heavenly jury said, hallelujah. God is right. The accuser is wrong. Wow. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrongdoing. So now another meeting takes place in heaven. The scene changes to heaven again. Do you think this trial would have been a lot easier for Job if he had, uh, if he had known what was going on? Oh yeah, piece of cake. He said, I'm going to vindicate God. Have you ever thought about the, about the idea that what we do or don't do has a role in vindicating God or giving God a black eye? 
That's what this story is all. Yeah, we know. I mean, we're going to we're going to notice towards the end of the presentation today that this is describing this is really describing what's going to take place in the time of trouble. You know, those ministers, those televangelists that are preaching prosperity, God wants you to be rich and he wants you to have lots of houses and lots of cars and lots of money. They are setting up the Christian world for the most incredible uh, crash landing that you can imagine. Because, you know, if, if you serve God because God prospers you, what's going to happen when there is no prosperity? During the time of trouble. You know, if you, if you serve God because of the loaves and the fishes... What happens when there are no loaves and fishes? Now notice chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Oh, so they must have left the first meeting, right? They went back to where they came from? So they come again to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now now I can imagine God with a a little more plight. You know, his chest goes out a little more. And he says, Have you not considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you have incited me against him to destroy him without cause. But now the devil isn't going to just take this line down. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. You didn't let me touch him. Just take what what he has. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. So the heavenly beings are thinking, they're saying, hmm, that's right, he took everything he had. And he says that you're willing to give give up everything you have as long as you have your life and your health. Now the devil says, What if you let me touch him? Would he not curse you to your face? So the jury is watching. What is God going to do? What would happen if God says, No, I'm not going to let you touch him? Hmm. They'd start wondering, What is God afraid of? Maybe Job Job is willing to give up everything that he has, but he still has his health. So God is going to put himself on the line again. Notice verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I mean, when the devil does this, he does it well. I mean, no, no little old uh, rash. I mean, you're talking, it, it was terrible because it says in verse 8, and he took for himself a potsherd, which is a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. Now, what has Job lost up till now? He's lost all of his children, he's lost all of his possessions, he's lost his health, and now he's about to lose his wife, at least the support of his wife. His wife is going to become an instrument in the hands of Satan. 
Verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Who had said, He will curse you to your face? Satan had said that. So what is Job's wife saying? Curse God and die. Whose instrument is she? Satan's instrument. Satan is using her to try and convince Job to curse God. So he's lost the support of his wife. Yes? Of course. Evidently, she did serve the Lord for loaves and the fishes. <laughs> okay, now verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Who's looking pretty bad here? The devil's looking bad. Who's looking good? God's looking good. Job is doing what? He's vindicating the character of God. He's making God look good and he's making the devil look like a fool. The accusations of the devil are proved to be what? Wrong and false. Now he's lost his wife. The next thing he's going to lose is the support of his best friends. They come to comfort him, of course. <laughs> Let's go to verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now if you continue reading with chapter 3, you'll notice that his friends become his accusers. Oh, this is happening to you because you're a big sinner, because you're self-righteous. Another friend says, how can you serve a God that does this to you? In other words, they become tempters in the hands of the devil. The devil is using his friends, turning them against him, so that Job will eventually give up, throw in the towel, and curse God and die. Now what, what has happened? Job has lost everything that he has, except his life. He's lost his possessions, he's lost his children, he's lost the support of his wife, he's lost, lost his health. Now he loses the support of his friends. But what makes the trial of Job particularly difficult is that apparently now he is losing the support of God. In other words, he feels forsaken of God. He sees no rhyme and reason to what is taking place. Now the interesting thing is that from chapter 3 through chapter 37, Job is speaking with his friends, but mostly he's speaking to God, and he talks and talks and talks, and God says nothing. 
The answer of God to Job is a deafening silence. And Job is saying to himself, you know, I I can handle losing my possessions. I can handle losing my, my kids. I can handle losing my wife. I can handle not having my health. I can handle... Losing even the support of my friends. says, But what, what is difficult for me to handle is I cry out to God and God answers with silence. My best friend. Have I lost the support of God as well? He feels that God has forsaken him. Let's read several verses from the poetic section that describe the agony of Job. Job 16 verse 9. I'm only going to read a few because we don't have time to read... Uh, all of them, but you can read the poetic section of the book and uh, you'll find a lot more text. Job 16 and verse 9. Here Job is speaking about God. He says, He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze upon me. Notice chapter 16 and verses 11 to 14. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He's speaking about God. He says, God shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. See the picture that he's presenting of God? God has become my what? My enemy. And I can't understand why. Why? Why has God become my enemy? I know my integrity. Notice chapter 16 and verses 16 and 17. My face is flushed from weeping and my eyelids and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. Did he still have his integrity? Yes. But he's questioning, why have you forsaken me? Why have you become my enemy? By the way, Is this the agony that was going to be felt by Jesus? You know, I have a two-part presentation on DVD on the book of Job. One is how Job prefigures Jesus. Because Jesus also cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he had nothing. He was physically disfigured. He didn't even have the clothes on his back. And Jesus also felt like Job felt, forsaken by his father. Suffering under the wrath of his father. Now let's go to Job chapter 19, verses 9 through 11. Job 19, 9 through 11. Here Job is describing his trial. He says, speaking about God, he has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me. And he counts me as one of his what? As one of his enemies. Let's go a little earlier. Chapter 19 verses 6 and 7. Know then that God has wronged me. And has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. 
if I cry aloud, there is no what? There is no justice. Notice chapter 23 and verses 3 to 5. Chapter 23 and verses 3 through 5. Job says, All that I knew where I might find him. Can you see the picture? He says, I wish I could go up there. All that I knew where I could find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him. See, this this is a case in a court of law. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There's no greater fool than he who represents himself in a court of law. Job doesn't really understand what he's talking about. Don't be hard on Job. Job had no written revelation. He doesn't know what's going on. He's still hanging on to God. He feels forsaken, but he hasn't let loose. He says in verse 4, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. In other words, he would say, you're right. Notice chapter 30 and verses 20 and 21. I'm just picking and choosing a few texts here and there. Chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. Job says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me. Verse 21. But you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. And finally, chapter 31 and verses 5 and 6. 31, 5, and 6, and then we'll go to verse 35. It says in verse 5, If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales. Do scales have to do with judgment? Yes or no? Of course. Let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. Verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a what? A book. By the way, not all is negative in these chapters. Job has his moments of highs and lows. You know, for example, in Job 13 verse 15 he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. This is an ambivalent feeling. It's like Jesus when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. (laughs) Are you following me? If you say that because Job felt forsaken of God and he's crying out to God for justice, that Job sinned, then you'd have to say that Jesus sinned. Because Jesus went through the same experience. He cried out with anguish according to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Also he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? He says, I know that he'll call me from the grave if I should die. He also says, I know that my Redeemer, what? Lives. And he says, I'm going through the furnace, but when I come out of the furnace, I will be like pure gold. So he has his his peaks in his experience in these chapters, but he also has his questions and his doubts. So you come to the end of chapter 37, you, you come to the chapter 38, and God has heard enough. And God is going to say, okay, Job, you be quiet, my turn. God finally breaks the silence. Chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What was Job's problem? He didn't have what? 
didn't have knowledge, that's right. He says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And by the way, chapter 38, 39, and 40, and 41, God asks Job over 60 questions. God says, you've asked me a lot, now it's my turn to ask you. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You puny little old creature. Tell me if you have understanding. It's a question of the distinction between creator and creature. Who is the creature to question his creator? Verse 5, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God is speaking somewhat sarcastically here. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In other words, where were you, Job, when all of this took place? And what, what is Job's answer, of course? I wasn't even anywhere near to being born back then. And then if you read chapters 38, 39, and 40, you'll discover something very interesting. God describes in its proper order the days of creation. He begins here with the foundations of the earth. Then you, I'm not going to read all the verses, but you can notice that God speaks about creating the day and the night. The light. Then he speaks about the firmament, where the rain and the snow fall from. That's the second day. Then he speaks about the green grass in the field. That's the third day. Then he speaks about the constellations, the Pleiades and Orion. He mentions by name. That's the fourth day. Then he describes the customs of birds. That's the fifth day. Then he speaks about the land animals. That's the sixth day. So he's describing creation. And he's saying to Job, in a series of over 60 questions, he's saying, where were you when I did all of this? Who are you? Little insignificant creature to question me, the great creator. And as God speaks, Job, in his own estimation, becomes smaller and smaller. And he's saying, who am I to even demand answers from God? God is God. I'm creature. I simply need to accept. Now the interesting thing is that when God finishes his speech, if you go with me to chapter 40... God concludes by saying this, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. What was Job doing? He was demanding answers from God. He was rebuking God. How, how is it that this happens to me? God says, well, listen. Where were you when I made all these things? When I created all these things? Now did Job get the point? Notice verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, Job is saying, I am not going to say anymore I'm not going to talk anymore you've made your point you are the great creator and I am simply a creature but the interesting thing is 
that even though Job says, you've made your point, I'm not going to argue any further, I'm not going to ask for any more explanations. In fact, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say any more. Job does speak again in the book. Do you want to know when he speaks in the book? It's after God reveals something very significant to Job. One thing which has puzzled many of those who have studied the book of Job is that all of the key protagonists of the story reappear at the end of the, of the book. But there's one who appears to disappear from the book. Satan. Satan. The, the adversary. And they say, this is a travesty and justice. You know, his friends reappear and... You know, obviously he gets married because he has more children, or maybe it was the same wife that, the wife that had a conversion experience. Job reappears, you know. But Satan, the one who caused all of these calamities, he seems to disappear from the book. The fact is that Satan does reappear at the end of the book. But he doesn't appear under the name of Satan, but he appears under the name of Leviathan. Now let's notice chapter 41. Chapter 41. And we'll only read some of the verses here. Chapter 41 and verses 1 through 4. This is a climax of God's questioning to Job. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or with his head? Or, or his head with fishing spears? In other words, can you defeat and kill Leviathan? Is what God is asking him. Now you say, what's so significant about this? Archaeologists have discovered in excavations in the area where this event took place that the people of that day had, they knew the name Leviathan. Leviathan was a seven-headed creature that the gods had to fight and overcome in order to create the world. Now this obviously is in paganism. It's in mythology. But God is speaking to Job in the terminology of the day and age that he can understand within a monotheistic uh, context. Because Job did not believe in this, that there were many gods and that the gods defeated this Leviathan. But he knew, he lived in the context where Leviathan was conceived or understood as the, as the enemy of the gods. So immediately this triggers the thought. The enemy of God, Leviathan. Now who is this Leviathan? Well, let's notice a few other verses. Verse 18 of chapter 41. You know, many scholars say that this is a crocodile. This is some crocodile that breathes smoke and fire and makes the waters boil. Verse 18, his sneezings flash forth light. 
And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. What kind of beast is this? It's a fire-breathing dragon. That's right. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smokes goes out of his nostrils. As from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals. And a flame goes out of his mouth. Verse 24. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail. Nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. In other words, this dragon is what? Powerful and indestructible. Human beings cannot destroy him. He breathes fire and smoke. Yes, can't even come near him. He, he, he makes the waters boil. Who is this being? Verses 33 and 34. On earth, there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. There's the key. He is king over all of the children of pride. Say, well, okay, pastor, you know, it's a symbolic language. Well, go with me to Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27 and verse 1. Isaiah 27 and verse 1. In that day, I wish we had time to talk about Isaiah 24 to 27. It's called the little apocalypse of the Old Testament, the little book of Revelation in the Old Testament. It's tremendous. This, these chapters are future-focused, primarily on events that take place at the second coming and after the millennium. But chapter 27, verse 1, is describing what is going to happen after the millennium. It says, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeting serpent. What is Leviathan? Oh, he's the serpent, Yes. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. And he will slay the what? Well, it says here in the New King James, the reptile, because the scholars are thinking crocodile. But the King James says, the dragon that is in the sea. By the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that is used is drakon where we get the word dragon from. Now, who is Leviathan? Leviathan is the serpent and the dragon. Now go with me to Revelation 12. We'll allow scripture to interpret itself. Let me ask you, does Job finally understand who has caused all of his affliction? Yes. Of course he does. See, in that historical context, he knows that Leviathan is the enemy of the gods. Of course, he only believes in one god. But still, the principle is that Leviathan is the one who is causing these problems. And God is saying, can you defeat Leviathan, Job? Nobody can. There is no one who can stand before him. 
Now notice Revelation 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in all in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Notice that there are three names that are used in this verse that are used in Job. Satan in chapters 1 and 2. The serpent. The dragon. So who is Leviathan? The Leviathan, Leviathan is a symbol of... Yeah, well, obviously the devil is not a seven-headed creature with breathing fire out of his mouth. He's, he's not only a prideful creature, he's, he's the king over the children of pride. Who is the king over all of the arrogant people in the world? Satan. Now, let's go back to the book of Job. Are you catching the picture here? Let's go back to Job. And let's notice what Job says after God shows him the picture of Leviathan. God is basically, God is saying, Job, your problems have been caused by Leviathan. Do you think that you can defeat Leviathan? This is the climax of his argument. See, he's described creation. Were you there? Did you do when I did this and when I did this and when I did this? And Job says, no, no, I wasn't there. No, I'm not going to talk anymore. You made your point. Who is puny little me to ask questions? But then God shows him Leviathan. He says, oh, so he's the one who was doing it. I certainly can't defeat him, is what Job is thinking. And then in chapter 42, Job speaks again, even though he said he wasn't going to speak again. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. Including what? Including defeating what? Leviathan. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? What was his problem? What was uh, Job's problem? He was speaking and he didn't have the what? The knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. If, if Job had one defect, it was this, the sin, if we can call it a sin, the sin of ignorance. Demanding answers from God. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not what? I did not know. Then he says, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What does he mean when he says, my eye sees you? He's saying, now I understand. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What is he repenting of? Of his, of his doubts, his questionings of ignorance, his lack of knowledge, his demanding answers of God. And then, of course, the story ends by saying that Job gets twice as much as what he had before. If he had failed, God would never have rewarded him. In that fashion. Was Job victorious? Was God proved right? 
Yes, he remained loyal to God. Even in the midst of doubts and questions and perplexities, he never let loose of the hand of God. He never cursed God to his face and said, you know, I want to die. Curse God and die. Now folks, this book, the book of Job, is really a description of the experience that God's people are going to go through during the time of trouble. You see, the devil's argument has been that God's people serve God because God is good to them. He says, you've hedged them about. You haven't allowed me to touch them or to take away anything from them. If they lost everything, they would, they would let go of you and they would curse you to your face. So what God is going to do after the close of probation is he is going to give to the devil full control of planet earth but he's going to say you can do whatever you want to my people but you cannot take their lives and during the time of trouble God's people will lose everything everything houses, lands, money relatives will turn against them family members will turn against them They will hunger and thirst, not die of hunger and thirst, but they will hunger and thirst, cast into prison. They will have nothing on this earth to lean upon. And in great controversy, Ellen White says that they will cry out to God day and night for deliverance. And God's answer will be silence. Of course it is. Are God's people going to feel like God has forsaken them? Read the chapter on the time of trouble and great controversy. They begin to fear. Ellen White says that God has forsaken them. Cry out to God, they said. Lord, are you going to allow us to become a reproach among men? Have you forsaken the earth? Will you not deliver us? They will cry out day and night like the the widow in the story of Luke 18. She kept on coming and coming and coming to the judge. And the judge kept on putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And she kept on coming. Till finally the judge says, Oh man, this lady's a pest. I'm going to get her off my back. I'm going to give her what she wants. Then, then Jesus uses that as a contrast with God. He says, listen, if this judge gives the widow what she asks for because of her persistence to get, him, get her off his back, how much more will God... Answer your pleas, even though he delays, not because to take you off his back, but because he loves you. It's comparison by way of contrast, in other words. Who will be causing all of these afflictions to God's people? Be the devil. Let me ask you, will be will we be in a much better position than Job? Yes. Of course. There's no excuse. Because we have his story. See, God wants us to take these stories. He wants us to assimilate them. He wants them to make them part of our fiber so that when we're going through these experiences, we are comforted and strengthened by these experiences. The story of Daniel 3, the three young men before the, before the image that the beast raised up. That's a comforting story. Daniel in the lion's den. Israel crossing the Red Sea. I mean, those are stories that we need to know, we need to assimilate, we need to believe, we need to make part of our fiber. 
so that when the trial comes, we have the benefit of Scripture. And we have the benefit of our own personal experience with the Lord. Let me ask you, is God going to take care of Leviathan? Yes, after the millennium, with his sword, as it says in Revelation chapter 20, in Isaiah 27, with his swift and strong sword, he is going to de destroy Leviathan in the sea. Of course, the sea represents multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples of the wicked that had gathered around the holy city. And then God will restore prosperity to his people. Double! Double means an abundance, more than ever before. And God's people will live with him forevermore. And the whole universe will see that God is right. And that his people served him out of love and not of self-interest. And God will have a clean universe where sin nevermore will enter again. That's the Adventist view of the plan of salvation. It's much broader than, oh, Jesus came to save me. God came to this world through Jesus to vindicate his character before the universe. Well, it's been nice being with you. I hope that what we've studied will be beneficial, not only intellectually, but also in our personal walk with the Lord. And may God bless you the rest of this weekend. I'm sorry I can't stay. I sure wish I could. But... Uh, Assimilate as much as you can. Enjoy this, these times as much as you can because the time is coming when we're going to have to stand alone. So let's just uh, take advantage of the fellowship that we can have here to strengthen our spiritual experience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, the m magnificent messages that you have given in your word for us. We realize that these things have, have writ been written for our comfort and our consolation that we might have hope. I ask, Father, that you will continue to bless GYC, that you will pour out your spirit upon this place this weekend, and that an army of young people might go forth from this place ready to conquer the world for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us, and thank you for hearing and answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.